0: Our conscious decision was that we would be a universal processing machine. So the cards, the banking, the lending, everything would be our own stack. That was number one. Number two, we chose to focus a lot on the legacy systems, And that means thinking about this differently. It means you have to have a well-developed migration capability because they will have millions of accounts to migrate. As a platform, we recognize what our strengths are. And essentially, if you were to capture that in one line, we are the high speed, high resilience, plumbing of the financial infrastructure. We are good at transaction processing at high speed and high resilience with minimum latency.
1: You have just heard from Vishal Dalal, the international CEO at Pismo, a next generation banking and cards technology provider, founded in 2016 in Brazil. Pismo is a truly cloud native API platform that helps clients to respond to market changes at lightning speed. Last week, Visa announced the acquisition of Pismo at a Unicorn valuation, with the deal expected to close before the end of the year. So let us dive right in. Good morning, Vishal. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's
0: a pleasure to be here.
1: We scheduled this two weeks ago, and we actually had spoken to your PR team already since the end of last year. We were waiting for like a moment where it makes sense to have yeah. conversation with some good news. And the good news two or three weeks ago was the deal you struck with City. And that got superseded last week with some even bigger news. Lucky timing that we have here. Congratulations on last week news. In March, April, there were some rumors around the bidding war between MasterCard and Visa. And Visa it is now. That's your new home. Congratulations to that. Thank you. So there might be not that much you can talk about. There's probably the I's to dot and the T's to cross, but it's one of the questions I would have had for you is obviously had a great career before Pismo. You've been a partner at McKinsey and the natural question is why did you leave McKinsey and join the company like Pismo? What did you see? And we got the answer in a way last week, but maybe we wind back anyway to two, three years ago when you were facing that decision and what attracted you to Pismo in particular? Actually, I think the genesis
0: for this essentially was laid throughout my career. So I spent about 12 or 13 years implementing the old legacy systems in Citibank and Barclays. I did both on the card side and the banking side. I implemented some of the legacy systems. So that's what I spent my entire career doing. And then in McKinsey for about 10 years, I spoke about them in a sense, right? I consulted with clients on them. I started tracking the market for cloud-native core banking systems. I is published on them, et cetera, et cetera. In a way, it was almost a natural progression. Spent the first 12 years and 13 years implementing them. Spent the next 10 years talking about them, consulting them. Right, looking at the whole problem of core banking and cards migrations from different points of view. And so, when I got the chance to actually run a business something like this, that Felt like the logical progression. I think that was number one. Second, the way it actually came about was I had published this paper on where cloud native core banking systems were going. I think this was around April or May, 2020. And one of the founders, Ricardo saw it and he called me up to have a chat and we got talking, he started talking about his product and he mentioned that it was probably the only one in cloud native banking, which had made a significant dent in the problem of migration of a legacy bank system to a cloud native core bank, which... At least to me at that point in time, I hadn't heard of, I was fascinated. The conversations carried on and about five or six weeks later, Ricardo said, do you want to come on board? We are largely Brazil based. Do you want to come on board and spread our gospel worldwide, right? Take this international. I really liked the founders. They walked the right line between audacious thinking and pragmatism. It felt like a chance to build something from scratch. So it basically ticked a lot of boxes for me. It was a great collegial atmosphere and I did it. Here we are then.
1: Being the international CEO and covering the rest of the world, except for Brazil or maybe Latin America, you've got a very wide field to yeah. cover there. And clearly like with the city deal, we're seeing it, that you've made a dent in probably the biggest market. Yeah. yeah. Again, from your consulting this you have executive relationships that you can leverage, but how did you go about prioritizing the opportunity?
0: Obviously the product was already ready, in very good shape, and I think it's fair to say that it was in, if not a dominant, then at least a prominent position in Latin America. I actually started off from first principles, right? I remember on day two of joining, I almost said, okay, if I was going to take this product and contact, let's say, 15 executives that I knew, what would they want to hear? I was lucky in the sense that there were 15 executives who, you know, without being biased in terms of wanting to buy it or not wanting to buy it, said, okay. Tell us what the proposition is. We'll tell you what we want to see and what we want to hear. So it almost started off in very, (laughs) problem solving style saying, okay, this is what a proposition like this should look like. This is what it should have. And so I was able to put that down on paper, start engaging with what were an incredibly supportive group of founders and, and engineers. I gradually took that I said, okay, this is our proposition went through the gaps. And I said, look, this is where we need to add a little. I again went back to some of these executors. A couple of them said, "You know what? I think we're willing to consider this, right, in a small way on a part-time basis." At that point, it struck me a little that maybe there's a good product-market fit here. We got our first international market, which was India. At that time, we heard about the city RFP. City obviously very accomplished. Amex City as well. They do their homework very well. They knew that we existed. They've got a very well set up corporate intelligence function, and we happened to be invited there. So we decided we'd give it everything we had. From there on, one thing led to another. We then started expanding our footprint in India. I reached out to a couple of executives I knew in Australia, found that there was a pretty decent product market fit. we managed to get someone who knew executives well in Australia, it went up. We then thought that the next frontier to conquer would be the US because for someone like us, it almost feels like an infinitely vast market. We were lucky to have very satisfied clients in other parts of the world who wanted to carry out operations in the US. So it felt a little bit like rock climbing. You take the first foothold, look around and see where you can put your foot next, right? That worked. We hung on for there for some time. We didn't collapse. Then we said, okay, time to find the next foothold. It's been remarkable because we raised our Series B funding in November 21. So at least for me, it's been beyond my wildest expectations. So very pleased and blessed to be in this position.
1: That round that you mentioned was a massive round, it was like $108 million. I haven't yeah. found the press release that showed the valuation. We never did reveal
0: that, so I think that's going to stay that way. But I think it was a very important round because it gave us the ability to establish offices in our choice locations. So we set up Bristol, Singapore, India using that money. We managed to get a few international executives who knew that market. We were able to do a lot of certification in the sense that For example, we had to go to individual countries and get certified on local networks like Rupay for India, right? So all of those things needed money and local expertise. And I think that round helped us do that.
1: When I looked at Pismo, I saw it a bit like as a challenger of the challengers. What I mean by this is the previous generation, maybe the Mambus and the Thorpe machines, and you're now challenging those. Would you see yourself in that vein or would you describe it differently, how you differentiate yourself against those two in particular?
0: That's a great question. The best way I think about this is we offer all of the good things about, let's say, the Tesla, the electric car. But with the added convenience of finding a petrol pump wherever you want to go and not having to look for a charging point. What I mean is a lot of our competitors typically tend to focus on one side of the equation. So they'll typically tend to focus, let's say, on the banking side. And they will have partnerships with some of the cards players or sometimes the other way around, right? Our conscious decision was that we would be a universal processing machine, right? So the cards, the banking, the lending, everything would be our own stack. That was number one. Number two, at least what I've seen when I came on board was a lot of our very esteemed competitors and by the way, the great firms uh, consciously focused on what I would call the greenfield builds, the sort of digital banks or the new setups of fintechs. We chose to focus a lot on the legacy systems and that means thinking about this differently. It means you have to have a well-developed migration capability because they will have millions of accounts to migrate and you have to pay a lot of attention over there. It also means being much more stringent and industrial strength because some of these banks will have very strict criteria, right? So for example, one of the banks that we had Subjected us to a vulnerability test, a white hacking vulnerability test for all of two months through everything that they had, and we had to pass that. Or another bank set a hard technical limit saying that a transaction, an accounting transaction, a new sort of transaction has to be written to the database in less than 25 milliseconds. If you talk about the cloud, those are very hard standards to meet. So we essentially said we would focus there. And slowly it looks like it's turning out to be the right problems to solve. You
1: spend a lot of time in Asia as well, but clearly with the Hong Kong market, Singapore market, the digital banking licenses that we have there, Malaysia is coming up, the wide field is gone in a way. So your positioning is going after the incumbents and helping them with the migration seems to be a much bigger market now that this first wave of licenses has happened. Exactly. I would give the founders a lot of credit. Obviously they wrote the playbook
0: in Brazil. They took the right call. We worked collaboratively. And I think cause it made sense that it might be a much tougher problem to solve, which is the migration and the scale problem. We felt it was the right problem to solve. That decision is helping us quite a lot. We are now migrating 3 to 4 million accounts every quarter. That's just going up. And, you know, that makes a huge difference, right? The ability to do a brownfield build and migrate accounts, it's a credential that is not very easily earned. And it feels right now it's a very valuable credential to have. What
1: does it do to your sales cycle and the conversations that you have? It's hard enough to sell this foundational infrastructure for a startup, but at least as you described, the problem is much simpler. You're just onboarding, you don't migrate, but the added risk of a migration, the testing for the migration, et cetera, makes it a very complex software sale. So obviously when you go after banks like these, the typical
0: sort of decision process is about four or five months. Then you have the contract signing process, which takes about three or four months. Then you have all the essential sort of workshops just to get to the starting line, which takes about three to four months. And then the actual work starts and then the revenue comes in after that, right? So it's safe to assume for a very large bank two or three years before you start seeing traction. Of course, we work a lot with startups. We've worked with some of the most famous ones, N26 and all of them included. So of course we work, with them and they've been great and valuable partners and obviously they fulfill a very important financial function for everyone so we of course we want to be there for them and with them and we're very honored to be there i think the only modification i would make is we also concentrated on the migration problem right we are doing what is required to essentially be able to work with Greenfields and fintechs and i think doctor you clients you'll find that they're very happy with us i just think the extra step we took was saying, let's not
1: neglect this bigger problem. It will make the difference in the end. It looks like it's going to get there. That's great. The headlines last week also with the city announcement were core banking provider, but as you explained, already there is more than just the core banking in this card issuing the digital wallets there's lending and the corporate accounts that city contracted for i don't know what the term would be a universal banking solution yeah uh, well, we
0: haven't figured out the right <laughs> term
1: as yet i think we vacillate
0: between universal processing to sometimes in internal meetings calling it okay we have the right set of lego blocks let's not try to rename it We have the right set of Lego blocks, it's those same Lego blocks, which let us offer a simple current account to a slightly more complex savings account to a much more complex, multiple hierarchies for a multinational bank corporate account. It's all done using the same endpoints, the same APIs and just orchestrating them. My sense is that's what I'm hoping clients find attractive. One is. You're not going to have to contract with four or five different vendors, one for cards, one for banking, one for lending, and then orchestrate them together. That's number one. And I think the second one is you still have the comfort of knowing that if you want just one part of the platform, you take just that part and you pay just for it and should you need more, we're always there. And uh, all of our relationships have been that way. We started off with a very small part. Sometimes even in cards, we have something known as zero balance product where we don't even hold the balances. We just do the card processing. The bank takes the fraud and the go no go decision. We just do the processing. And that's a much smaller set, but banks find it very comfortable that they can take a slightly risk-free approach, almost try this out on a smaller portfolio and then keep expanding. That's the way it's been with everyone, including it out. We've just grown that relationship. And so hopefully we'll continue justifying their faith in us, working hard to ensure that they always feel like they want to work with us and we'll see where things go from there.
1: What I personally found exciting was the digital wallet part, just looking at some standalone companies that made a business out of just the wallets, they were probably still the ones that were doing well this year in fundraising and valuations. And so yeah. the valuation for that part alone could be pretty aggressive, who knows? But it feels a bit future proof because if the wallets take over from the bank accounts eventually, then you already have that migration yeah. built in as well. Exactly. We'll still be there when that happens.
0: The landscape is changing dynamically. You have various shoots of activity. On one hand, as far as the networks are concerned, you're seeing the rise of domestic networks, for example, TruePay in India, the UPI platform in India, PIX in Brazil. So obviously there's cards, which is huge. We're seeing the rise of account payments and we're ensuring that we're there for that as well. But there's a lot to watch out for and see what strategic shifts we need to make to ensure that we're relevant to everything. Where in the ecosystem should we be? But without spreading ourselves too thin, still trying to ensure that everything happens at the core and so we're relevant in most situations. It's a very interesting problem to solve. I can guarantee you it makes for some very interesting strategy sessions all the time. We've got a very sort of intellectually honest set of founders and engage in very interesting discussions and I think that's 80% of the fun of the job.
1: The innovation cycle has just gotten so much faster and when you and (laughs) I started our careers and you had a core banking system you knew it's around for whatever exactly. 20 exactly. years but you're no longer locking in for such a long time no
0: banks are demanding that we tailor the product such that they're not locked in so it's almost a paradox you have to solve for that you have to solve for banks to have just the right level of arms length. for us banks are no longer comfortable to the solution being so sticky At the same time, they do want the convenience and the safety. In computer science, it's not a trivial problem to solve.
1: Not at all. We also have an ecosystem of partners around the platform. What role do they play in terms of the markets or the customers that you're dealing with?
0: They're a very important part of our ecosystem. As a platform, we recognize what our strengths are. And essentially, if you were to capture that in one line, we are the high speed, high resilience plumbing of the financial infrastructure. So we are good at transaction processing at high speed and high resilience with minimum latency. What obviously we need someone else to do, because those are a very different set of risks, is essentially do all of the risk taking transactions, credit risk, AML, KYC, that sort of someone else. Obviously, also, we supply all of the data. We have an event driven architecture, which means that every time something changes on the platform, if it's a new transaction, if it's a new account, we supply that event and we typically leave it to others, sometimes the bank's partners, to Be able to monetize that data. So, do the analytics on it and things like that. Our partners help a lot in that. The third part is we intentionally chose to be what we call a headless core. So, the whole user experience, the front end, we believe banks are much better than us at doing that. Our strength is high speed, high resilience, no matter what transaction processing with no downtime. And we try to stick to that mission. So, everything that is not part of that statement, we typically depend upon our very capable partners to do it. And it's been a great ride with them so far.
1: So that means that although you're an engineering driven organization, you don't have many UX people on stuff.
0: We do, we still do have to make our product look good, but we've drawn a line between what UX we need. The UX that we provide is slightly different from the UX that our partners provide. The UX we provide is to our backend. If someone wants to configure an accounting transaction or to configure a new product and for that new product then configure an accounting transaction. Not everyone would be comfortable doing that through a set of APIs or changing parameters in the background. You have to draw the right line between not letting the front end we provide become too clunky but at the same time not leaving people grappling with apis and endpoints when they're not comfortable with it so again like everything else that we faced it's a very fine line to walk.
1: when you think about brazil the first thing that people think about in the fintech space is newbank and what is amazing with them is also the low cost to serve that they have for the individual clients do you feel you're in the same ballpark you're even better from a cost performance perspective Look, Brazil has obviously been very important to us,
0: but I think it's for a slightly different set of reasons. And I can comment on this being an outsider, having seen, for example, the rise of, let's say, India or the rise of other countries and how it compares to Brazil. The first thing is the workforce. For us, that mattered a lot. In general, it feels like it's a very product engineering oriented workforce. And I haven't seen something like that for some time. Right. So I think that sort of made a difference. The second thing is how sophisticated the regulator is in terms of being one of the early adopters of one of the early adopters of public cloud technology for co-processing. That' obviously helped us quite a lot. The third, as you say, is digital banking and all of the demographics which sort of combined to help the rise of digital banking, the so smartphone penetration at a low price, the willingness of people not to go to a branch and just do crazy things on their app and therefore in turn demand crazy things from our platform. Uh, I think those things rather than what made Newbank successful is what mattered to us. We benefited from a very different side of Brazil and remain grateful. I don't for a moment tend to minimize the importance of the fact that we came from there. It's made us a bit as a platform in addition to the talent, the founders, the fact that they dared to dream, but there were some very specific factors. One is it's a very sophisticated country financially. In terms of financial infrastructure, very sophisticated and forward thinking set of regulators and very high quality product engineering. And the reason I say this is I've seen a few countries where typically the mindset, because of the way things have evolved, was much more engineers were good at solving individual problems, much more in a service sense. This requires a slightly different mindset and it's actually been quite interesting to watch from the sidelines.
1: That's a very interesting observation. Any explanation for why that is so strong in Brazil? Yeah, I, it was actually baffling me for some time. And
0: for the first year that I joined, I couldn't even go because the pandemic, as you will remember, was raging at the time. But then I finally managed to go there. And I found some very interesting things, which again, having lived all over the world, I haven't really seen anywhere else. I think the first thing is in most courses that I see educationally, you will typically see some element of entrepreneurship woven in, some element of design, some element of productizing woven in. Everyone seems to have studied that. You go to more traditional country. If for example, you are studying computer science, you're studying computer science, the mathematical aspect of it and things like that. If you're studying engineering, you're studying engineering. Everything here seems to be bent towards that. It's there as a core part of the curriculum and it then seems to seep into people's mindset. Everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Everyone is always thinking about, okay, if I do this, how do I productize it? I can say it's different because I've had the fortune of witnessing five or six different countries grow in that direction. So
1: it's actually very interesting to think about. Yeah, especially from Japan perspective, because we have a gap in engineers that's coming up and everybody is wrestling with the problem of how do we generate better engineers? How do we improve the standing of engineers in society yeah. and so on? We shall see. One of the challenges that you are facing is to build this global organization and in a way that problem might have become much easier so because you've got lots of visa offices to hook yourself into now and also visa relationship to leverage. Do you think that changes how you're the individual markets or is that too early to tell? It's a bit too early to tell. It's not just going to be a function of sales. If we do a good job and
0: if we market ourselves, if we have the right sort of distribution, of course, we'll get clients. But this is a very unforgiving field. If you don't do a good job in execution, the reputation that's earned is lost. I've been in this field for 25 years and I know how fatal something like that can be. Whatever happens on the sales side, where we'll hopefully be made or broken is how well we deal with existing clients, their implementations, how we keep them happy, how responsive we are to them without compromising on the core nature of the platform. We are a SaaS platform. We cannot let it go into the legacy problems and let it become customized. But at the same time, We've got to keep our customers happy and show them ways of working with our platform. As I said, like everything else, and it's been a theme throughout my time here at Desmo, it's about that balance. And if we don't strike that balance, the sales really won't matter.
1: When you look at Asia as a whole, how do you judge the market given some of the digital banking initiatives that we mentioned already? Asia is very
0: different and there are different Asia. North Asia for us, given our limitations language skills etc my sense is it'll take us some time before we get there unless of course we get lucky and there's a bank which likes us enough to say we'll conquer the language barriers so i think that's some distance away southeast asia is very interesting one because they tend to take a very progressive attitude towards the public cloud and one of the things that we have said unlike some of our competitors is we will absolutely just try and be good at what we are we'll think very carefully about deploying on-prem or deploying on a hybrid cloud because that just dilutes our expertise. And so for us, it's very important that there are countries which take a sophisticated forward-looking view of the public cloud. And Southeast Asia is one of them. they very good at concentrating on what benefits it can get them in terms of scalability, in terms of democratizing the ability to scale up. So Southeast Asia matters to us, Oceania, which is Australia and New Zealand matters a lot to us. One of the most sophisticated and technologically advanced group that we've seen the u.s matters to us from a very different perspective for someone of us it feels like almost an infinite market and so it's important to pay a lot of attention to it as well obviously the other country that really matters to us and to me personally because it was our first international market is india it's going through an evolution at a speed which can scarcely be imagined you look at the rise of upi And it feels like the right place at the right time. When we started, we had 900 million debit cards and 60 million credit cards. It's a huge imbalance to address. And now it looks like it's a rocket ship. We're just hoping to do a good job in those countries that matter to us. And hopefully the rest will take care of itself.
1: It honestly sounds like the problem that you need to solve for is to find the right talented people. Because now it's how do you scale the organization? Uh,
0: Always. That is always the case. I don't think there is a more important function right now than the person who's putting the next candidate to their computer science interviews and asking them what they know about distributed computing. That is what the future of a company rests on, right? It's plain and simple. That's
1: it. Wonderful. Thank you, Vishal. Really appreciate you taking the time. And that was a great conversation. Wishing you best of luck going forward.
0: Thank you for having us. Over. It
1: was a great conversation. Appreciate it.